All right, so we're going to pick back up in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 asks you to turn there, and I apologize. Somehow or other, the one set of song lyrics didn't get pulled in there as I thought it should, but uh, I will make sure to double-check next time. Uh, one, would you stand just in honor of God's Word as we read 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereinto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation." For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All right, thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to skip the reading of the, uh, the Lexham English Bible. It's very similar. But uh, I want us to kind of remember where we came from last week. And we looked at two things last week. Uh, first of all, Peter started reminding the re readers of his letter about a lot of stuff. And uh, he says, I'm putting your remembrance this. I'm confident that you're going to remember this. He tells them about four different times, remember this, remember this, remember this. And so it's okay if us preachers are a little redundant from time to time because as human beings we need reminding because either we kind of just forget certain things or don't pay them any attention for a long time and we need to be reminded of how important they are. Or maybe we're just not doing what we know we need to do and we need a little, we need a little shove back in the right direction. And then we talked about the majesty of God's Word. And Peter shared with us his Matthew chapter 17 experience of being with James and John and seeing Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus, telling him about his forthcoming death. And that made a huge impact on Peter, not just because of what he saw. He got to see Christ in the glory that he would have after the resurrection. But he also was very impressed by what he heard. And that's the thing he comments about over and over again is the word that he heard. And that, that excellent, majestic voice that spoke from heaven and said, Thou art my son, you know, or, you know, listen, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, quit talking your own ideas. And so now we're going to jump into the last section of these first 21 verses, and that is the meaning of God's Word. And I need to kind of cover some terms with you. And these are theological terms, but they're terms that are important to know because Peter's going to talk, he's going to use every one of these three words in different verses. Uh, I, let me start at the bottom of this little chart, and, and that is illumination. And verse 19, illumination is the act where God enlightens people to understand his revelation, that's his word, and its relevance to their lives. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but very often when I'm having my quiet time in the morning, I, I will always pray first because uh, I think if you read your Bible without praying, you're making a mistake. You ought to pray first and say, Lord, you're the author. You know what you meant when you, when you wrote these words or said these words. Now explain it to me and help me notice if there's something you want me to hear. And I love having this little two-way dialogue with God. I'll read a verse and I say, Lord, is that for me? And, and if the Lord says uh, yes, then I'll say, okay, how am I supposed to apply that verse to my life? And then I'll pray about that verse. And sometimes I read a verse and frankly it's a verse about genealogy and it's so-and-so begets so-and-so. Probably not a whole lot of application in my life. Don't underestimate the, the significance of the, the meaning of names in Scripture, but probably not a lot of significance to me most of the time. But I, I want to make sure that I read each word, pray about it, and ask God for a little illumination. Does this apply to me? Then in verse 20, we have the word revelation. This is the act whereby God reveals truth to mankind through special revelation and also general revelation. Now, general revelation is through nature. 
Uh, and I hope, I know there's some young people here, and I just want you to know, I hope you've gotten out of the big city and into the country. And I hope everybody has gotten far enough out in the country that there's no street lights, no, no uh, mercury lights or parking lot lights or, or those uh, amber lights going down the freeway. You've got to actually get a good distance out in the country to see this. But if you get far enough out into a national park or something without lights, you can look up and you will be just amazed at how many stars are in the sky. And you have to suddenly realize, boy, God is a big God to have created all that. If you ever go to Yosemite National Park and you see these, these giant mountains, you climb up to the top of Bald, uh, well, it's Bald something, Half Dome Mountain, there we go, Half Dome Mountain, and you look down from Half Dome Mountain and you know that there's still other mountains taller than that, but you look down and, and, and General Revelation says, man, this is a powerful God to be able to, to carve all this out and make those waterfalls and build those rocks out of granite and, and, and uh, take care of all these plants and fish and wildlife. It's just an amazing God that we have. So General Revelation teaches us a few things about God. Paul, in fact, said in Romans chapter 1 uh, that the, the invisible things, actually it's not Romans 1, but the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the foundation of the world, even His eternal power and Godhead. So we can look in creation and see stuff that teaches us about God. I mean, think of it. Water exist in three different forms, right? Ice, steam, and liquid, okay? Uh, steel or iron exists in three different forms. It's, it's normally a, a solid, but heated up enough, it can become liquid. Heated up enough, it will vaporize into gas. Everything we know pretty well has three forms. Why is that? Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in creation is revealed to us the Godhead, and even the Trinity is evident in creation. How many kinds of time do we have? Past, present, and future, that's all we've got. Why? Because he's a trinity and he created time. In fact, it is in Revelation, there's going to be an angel that comes down and says, there shall be time no more. The clocks will quit working at that point because there won't be any past, present, and future. There'll just be one great eternal present. Uh, because God created time and it's his creation. He lives above it. That's why Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Why? Because God still sees before Abraham. Uh, he still sees Jesus hanging on the cross and my sins being covered by his blood. And he sees what's happening to me 30 years from now, should I live that long. And because he's above time, he's not of time. That's general revelation. But then there is specific revelation, and that's the written word that we have in the 66 books of the Bible, the scripture canon. And so God reveals through the scriptures uh, as the prophets wrote, as the apostles wrote, uh, the scripture that we have that. And then in verse 21, he's going to mention inspiration. And this is the act of God whereby the writers of scripture were given words by God, but still were allowed to be fully human while they wrote to produce the scriptures. In other words, God didn't dictate word by word. He gave them the words he wanted them to say, but they wrote it out through their personality and through their dialect and through their vocabulary. That's why we know that Paul was from southern Judea, not northern Judea, because he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you all. Now today he would have just said y'all in good Texas fashion. But that's why he's a good southerner when he talks. And he came out and said you all instead of you guys like they might say up north. In other words, they use their own vocabulary. And, and so these are three important terms, revelation, inspiration, and illumination. So let's kind of look at a chart maybe that will help us understand this process a little bit. And we'll just represent God here on the chart by a triangle because this is uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he, if we go to the left of that uh, triangle... We, we have a block there named Revelation. He reveals to his prophets and his apostles, the people who wrote the books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. He revealed to them and they wrote these things down. Now, by the way, I recently I, I saw a slide this morning that said there were 46 books in the Old Testament. That person was obviously counting the Apocrypha, which even the people who published the Apocrypha said 
that uh, those books were not intended for doctrine. They recognized when they wrote the Apocrypha that while it was, it was fun to have, uh, it wasn't supposed to be Scripture, and it's sad that it's ever been regarded as that. But we're talking about the Hebrew canon of Scripture, which is the 39 books. It's actually fewer books in, in uh, Hebrew because First and Second Chronicles are one book, First and Second Kings are one book, uh, First and Second Samuel, just one book in Hebrew, uh, instead of being split apart. But these prophets or apostles were inspired. In other words, God breathed into them His Word, and they wrote down through their own vocabulary and their own personality and their own experience a manuscript. And if you look at our doctrinal statement, which you can easily find by going to the homepage of our website and wait until you see a blurb that says doctrinal statement, click on it. We believe that the writings of Scripture are inerrant and infallible in their original autographs. What that means is that it's going to be hard for you to find a translation that doesn't have some translation errors. But as God prompted the writers of Scripture as they wrote in the original languages of Scripture, uh, things were 100% correct. Now... We know that some of the original manuscripts we haven't found yet and people started copying and they would copy these scriptures and the Jews in particular had a very high um, moral standard when it came to copying down the letters of the Old Testament. If they got a single error on a page, they immediately burned that page and started writing over again uh, because they considered it uh, a terrible thing to do to make even a single mistake in Scripture. Now, Hebrew is kind of a weird language, by the way. It doesn't have any vowels. So in English, we have A, E, I, O, and U, and sometimes Y, okay, as vowels. In Hebrew, there's just 22 consonants. And so sometimes they might be unsure when they were copying or reading, is that supposed to be pronounced with these sounds, or is it supposed to be pronounced with these sounds? And they'd wonder about that just a little bit. And so uh, sometimes if they had a question, they would write their question down in the margin of the Bible. And sometimes someone else would come along and write an opinion as to what it should be. And these things became known as the Kathib and the Koray in Scripture, but they never altered the original text. Also, you remember Jesus said that uh, not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away. Uh, there's different wor uh, letters in Hebrew that look very similar, but one of them may have a little curve on the end of it. If you've ever done any desktop publishing, you know there are what they call uh, serif fonts that have these little curves on, on them. And there are sans serif fonts, which means they don't. They're just the plain letter and don't have any embellishments. In fact, is when you go through my slides, you'll notice that a lot of times... Uh, the regular text doesn't have any serifs on it, but whenever I quote scripture, I always use a Times New Roman font because it's got the little embellishments on it, and it actually helps people's eyes track visually. Because if you don't see anything else on the slide, I want you to see the scripture, and I want your eyes to be able to focus on it clearly. So I always do that. That's just the reverence I have for the Word of God that we use a different font for that. But these manuscript copies came in, and there's multiple copies of them, and we have found them. We had copies of Isaiah that we, we were wondering for years. We wonder how good these were. And then one day, there's a little shepherd boy over in the, the Mideast, and he happens to be throwing rocks into a cave, and he threw a rock in a cave and heard something break. And he went in there, and there were all these jars inside this cave, and inside these jars were sealed up ancient copies of scriptures, and we found copies of Isaiah that were 500 years before the birth of Christ. Now, everybody said that Isaiah was too specific about Jesus, that it had to be written after the time of Jesus. All we like sheep, we have gone astray. We have led everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him and esteemed him not. And, and you know, it was so specific about Jesus. But we found texts that were 500 years before the birth of Christ that it precisely predicted the manner of his death. So that was a great uh, bolstering for biblical scholars to know that. And what a comfort that was uh, to, to all of us. Now, interestingly enough, when you go to seminary, you take a course on what's called textual criticism. I'm not a big fan of this course, but you'll hear people talk about it. And what it is, is when you've got uh, different Greek texts and they differ in a word, 
you're supposed to know how to figure out which one was probably the original reading. And what they usually do is they look, and if you get a reading from Sinaiticus, which is one of the older ones, you probably prefer that over uh, Papyrus 46, which is the Chester Beatty Papyrus, and because the Sinaiticus was an older papyrus. Uh, or you might prefer Chester Beatty to some other papyrus or unseal, they called, that just have numbers. A lot of the, the manuscripts just have numbers. Uh, the, the thing is, though, is that this came in with a lot of German liberal theologians, and they would kind of pick the reading that they preferred. The safer way and the more textually accurate way is to use what's called the majority text of the Greek New Testament. And the reading that has the largest number of uh, occurrences is most likely to be the correct reading. And there's some, Zane Hodges, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a paper uh, explaining to us why this was so. Now, the reason I share all that with you is you really shouldn't be freaked out if you hear there's a difference in Greek text, because first of all, it only happens in about one in every 1,000 words in the New Testament. So there's 999 words that all the manuscripts are perfectly in agreement. And when it is a difference, it's a very insignificant difference. Let me give you an example. It's one of the ones that kind of irks me, but it's an example. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he says, But be thou, he tells him, he says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer in word and conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Now, there are a few manuscripts that leave out the words in spirit. Now, the majority text has it in there. The King James Bible was based on the majority text, so it translates it. So I happen to like that version for that reason. doesn't leave out words. But at the same time, just leaving those two words out, still the, the meaning of be thou an example of a believer in word and conversation, in, in charity, in faith, in purity is still a pretty good meaning. So there are manuscripts, and then somebody has to come along and translate them. Now, translations have errors, and some of them are pretty bad. Uh, although I still memorize the King James as the version I choose to read, every time I get to that verse in Proverbs that says, A man that hath friends must show himself to be friendly, but there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I just get mad. I get mad when I read that. Because in Hebrew, what it says is a man that has acquaintances, not, not deep, close personal friends, but, you know, people who will talk to you. It says, must show himself to be evil. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, which can only mean evil. In other words, if you want to be popular at work, get around the water cooler on Monday morning and tell all the sinful things you did over the weekend, tell a few dirty jokes, and you'll be everybody's buddy. But then it goes on to say, but there's a friend, a whole different Hebrew word. It means the kind of friend that really is like your, like your family member. Okay, just on this broadcast, I can see right now there's, there's three guys remotely, not to say there's not some here as well, but I can see Tim Townsend and Tim Boffman and Jim Willis. These guys are not just friends. They're like family to me, as are some of you. And they're my brothers in Christ. I'm closer to them than I would be just a regular friend. He says, but there is a friend, and he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, he, a, a super, super duper close friend, a best friend, the closest friend you can have, the, the kind you'd write a song about, I don't know, something like, what a friend we have in Jesus, that kind of song, okay. He says, that sticks closer than a brother. In other words, if you want to be ungodly, you can have lots of buddies around the water cooler to listen to you, but if you really want one friend who will never leave you nor forsake you, hang on to Jesus. Now see, that's the way that verse should have been translated. Somewhere in the scholars that did the King James Version, they kind of messed that up. That's not the only place. But then you have other versions like the New International Version. I'm not a big fan of that because they leave out almost every time in the New Testament it uses the word soul, they omit it. I'll give you an example, James chapter 1. Uh, but receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But in NIV it just says, but receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save you. Well, I could preach that wrong. I could, I could use the NIV and say, hey, listen, all you've got to do to be is saved is engraft some scriptures into your brain, memorize it, meditate it, and you'll get to go to heaven. 
I can make a whole wrong doctrine, but if I read the King James or the New American Standard or some other translation, the ESV or the Lexham English Bible, I will understand from better translations that it says, but I'm to receive with meekness the engrafted word. That is to put the word of God in my heart, to memorize it, to meditate on it. Because it will save my soul. My soul, by the way, is what I, how, where I think, where I feel, and where I decide. It's the Greek word suke from which we get psychology. So my thinking, my feeling, my decisions will be better if I'm meditating on God's word. Now, doesn't that make sense? So this is why we shouldn't leave words out. So I'm not a big fan of NIV. The New Living Translation, I remember reading the Living Bible while going down the road in the back of a pickup, and my dad had a camper on the pickup, and I'd lay on that part of that bed that was over the pickup cabin, uh, and I would read the New Living, or the, just the, 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 living, new, the living Bible, we called it. I remember it had a green case on it. I think I still had Very readable, but it's a paraphrase and not a translation. What's a paraphrase mean? It means they took another English version. They said, okay, let's convert this English to some simpler English for people to read. Not a translation, though. No. So we've got to be careful we know the difference between translations and paraphrases. Now, once you've got some people that have translated Scripture, then you have to observe what the Scripture says and interpret it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what kind of things you should observe in, a, in just a little bit. And that's the job of every Christian. You're really not supposed to come here and listen to me explain the Word of God and that, let that be your only explanation. You need to be spending time in the Bible, checking it for yourself, like the Bereans did, who they double-checked what they heard from some of the apostles. They went and searched the Old Testament Scriptures for themselves to see whether such things be so, the Scripture says. Now, by the way, God, when I'm reading my Bible, He also illuminates me. When I'm reading my Bible, I see stuff that God says, Oh, Robert, you really need this this week. Don't just, don't just skim over this. You, dude, you need to put this in your life. And that's what that illumination does. And, and what does Scripture say? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's illumination. And then with God's illumination and proper methods of interpretation, I find out what the Bible writer meant and what God is saying to me by what the Bible writer said, and I can apply it to my life. Now, by the way, if you don't have that last rectangle on this chart, which is application, then you're missing the whole point. All you are is a pew warmer, but we're supposed to be living translations of Scripture ourselves. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.20, now you then as ambassadors of Christ in His stead, in His place. In other words, we need to represent Christ to, to the world. Now, let's go into each of these three areas and start with the revelation of Scripture and see what Peter has to say about it. And first of all, we remember that the verses right before verses 19 through 21 show that Peter got some revelation on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter saw Jesus up there talking to Moses and Elijah and suddenly it dawned on him Everything the Old Testament said about the Messiah coming to earth and having his own kingdom is proved. He says, I always believed it, but now I'm seeing the king. I'm seeing the Messiah. I'm seeing him in all of his glory. I'm hearing that he's hearing about his death. And But the fact that Moses and Elijah are here, Moses died, but he's here. Elijah disappeared in a, a fiery chariot, but he's here. There's life after this one. So I know there's life after this one. I know Jesus is glorified. I know that he's going to have a kingdom. That means all the Old Testament was right. Spot on. And Peter got a lot out of this. He even knew what Moses and Elijah looked like, and they didn't have any Charlton Heston pictures to tell us what Moses looked like back then. Um, and he had a sense of the awesome majesty of the word that was spoken by God. He had an awesome sense of the majesty of Jesus Christ. So God revealed things to Peter through the transfiguration, but the main thing he revealed is the Old Testament, the revelation that God gave by inspiring men to write things down, that that, that word of the prophets, he said, is ever more certain. Now what's he mean by that? Um, it doesn't mean that he thinks that he doubted the Old Testament before and now he really believes it. 
What it means is that, yes, he believed it before, but now he has seen the proof of his belief. This sure, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. What's he mean by that? It's, frankly, it's not more sure than the transfiguration. Although I've got to tell you something, and I don't think this applies to Peter, but it certainly would apply to me had I been there. My memory of events changes over time. Does that happen to any of y'all? Do you ever remember things about yourself maybe a little more favorably now than you would back then? Or do you remember situations as being worse then than they really were? You know, our perception can change. Uh, but what's written down in God's Word never changes. That's why it's, uh, to me, that for me is what he means by it's a more sure word of prophecy. Now, remember that Peter is talking in a day when the New Testament did not yet exist in written form. There were actually a few Gospels. John had penned his Gospel by this time, but it obviously wasn't published in a book. Uh, when he says a more sure word of prophecy, he's talking about these Old Testament prophecies and how he knows that they're a direct revelation from God. And so what's he do? He says, if you, God reveals something, pay attention to it. Verse 19, give heed to it or pay attention to it because God's word has validity. It's always valid because he said it. Nobody knows more about life than God because he created it. I had someone close to me one time criticize my view of the Bible as being a how-to manual about life. Well, it's a book about God. It's a book about theology. It's a hymn book. It's a praise book. But there's nothing wrong with saying that it's a book that teaches you how to live life because it's written by the author of life and says, if you want to live life well, here's how you live it. So that is part of my, my belief, and I make no apologies for that. See, experience, though, can be deceptive. I, I, I knew one lady in, in the first church I pastored, and I was preaching on a particular subject, and she had uh, been taught something by some very kind of far out there charismatics and she'd heard on, on TV, and I read the scripture. The scripture was very plain, and it was from Ephesians, and I, I said, just listen to the plain words, and I read the scripture, and she made the statement, this is in a church full of people, while I was preaching, she says, I don't care what it says, I know what I've experienced. Listen, you should never put your experience above what the Word of God says. Because as Ebenezer Scrooge said, your experience could be misinterpreted by a bit of undigested beef or an underdone potato. Our experience can be deceptive and the traditions of men can be error laden. I know a lot of people that base their theology on the early church fathers, but they don't understand that the early church fathers didn't even agree with each other. Irenaeus and, you know, Polycarp was a good guy, but Irenaeus and Origen and Augustine all tended to disagree. They had a very liberal interpretation of Scripture, and they would make any Scripture say anything they wanted it to say, and they, they allegorized everything. And yet you had a, a fellow by the name of John Chrysostom at that same time period who called the other, quote, early church fathers, though they didn't call it back then, and I think it's a lousy term. But they called him back then and said, you know what? Uh, you need to be learning how to interpret Scripture literally and quit making everything in the Old Testament an allegory. In other words, he was saying you need to learn the historical, grammatical, contextual approach to Scripture interpretation. He was right, they were wrong, but he didn't carry the day. And the early church fathers that a lot of people revere threw Christianity into about 14 centuries of, of darkness. But for Peter, the transfiguration provided decisive proof that the Old Testament scriptures were not only inspired but absolutely reliable. Now, here's just another chart, just another way of looking at this process that from about 4000 BC all the way to about 100 AD, you have the writing of scriptures, the revelation. God speaking to people who wrote the 66 books of the Bible down. You remember the 66 books of the Bible, they're written by 40 authors. They're written over 2,500 square miles over a period of 1,500, uh, well, actually longer here, uh, you know, 3,900, 4,100 years. Okay, uh, just an amazing period. But 
this is the revelation to Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. And David did write some stuff down, but obviously, uh, you know, we had... Uh, Moses uh, had a copy of the Ten Commandments and somebody kept some records because we've got a lot of pretty detailed records of battles and whatnot. But for about 15, 1600 years, people were getting the revelation, writing things down, and God was superintending every word that they write so that it was correct. And then there was preservation. All throughout the centuries, God has been keeping His word so that we don't lose any of it. And then we have this process called illumination. Thy word is a lamp unto a feet and a light unto my path. Now, what does Peter say about that? Uh, well, first of all, we live in a darkened world. Don't we need light? Uh, I have gotten in the habit, you know, I've, I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble sleeping. So over the last three nights, I've slept a total of about seven hours. And it's due to pain from the rain and whatnot. And so I'm not at my best when I don't have a lot of sleep. But I do everything possible. I try to eat a little carbs right before I go to bed because that usually lulls me into a deeper sleep. I, I put on uh, sound, so I'm listening to brown noise or I'm listening to ocean waves or something every night. I actually had to quit listening to ocean waves because then I want to go scuba diving and, and that doesn't help me sleep. Uh, but I listen to brown noise. And the other thing is, you will hear people tell you this, turn off all the lights. It's amazing when you're a computer geek how many lights there are glowing in your bedroom at night. So I go around, I turn all these little things off, I try to get it really dark. The, the downside of having it really dark is you can stub your toe pretty easy. And uh, I remember one time i just come home and I, I was too tired to unpack, so I laid on the floor my black suitcase. Guess what my toe found in the middle of the night when I had to get up and make a, a visit to the throne room? Well, my toe found that black suitcase because the black suitcase in the dark didn't show up well. But we live in a darkened world, and a little light makes a lot of difference. Uh, we live in a world tainted by sin. Isaiah said, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. And that light that Isaiah is talking about is the Word of God. Uh, Romans thirteen twelve. Paul said, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And how do we do that? By practicing the Word of God. And here's what Peter says in verse 19. He says, As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day, and I added the words of Christ, because this is the day he's talking about, the day of Christ dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now, by the way, this uh, the word day here is phosphorus. You've heard of phosphorescent. You've heard of phosphorus as a chemical and how it can glow. Uh, but it means the light bringer. And Peter's saying that the Old Testament prophecies are lights, but they're going to pale in comparison to Jesus Christ when he returns. Because at that time, we won't need to ask any more questions about Scripture because when he returns, he's going to be all we think about. He's going to be all that we look to. He is the bright and morning star. And until then, we're to ask God to illumine our hearts as we study his word. Now, maybe he got this idea of the morning star. By the way, in, in ancient times, the morning star referred to Venus. Uh, I don't know how many of you are into uh, astronomy, but Venus is kind of a yellowish-looking thing. It's up there with the stars, but it's yellow. It's almost always easy to find. It's one of the brightest things in the sky at night. So they often call that the morning star because they used to see it uh, in a certain place uh, over the horizon just before uh, dawn. And maybe that's where that term came from. But Numbers 24:17, and I wish I had time to go into this verse and talk about the context of it. But just look what it calls Jesus. It says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it was this verse, by the way, that the Magi, who were descendants of the Magi that Daniel had been a part of, it was this verse that led them to follow and find Jesus Christ based on that particular prophecy. Now when he says arise in our hearts, uh, what, what he's saying here is this, when the day star arises in our hearts, he's saying when Jesus returns and we're seeing him personally, we're going to know all the truth that we need to know. Our understanding is going to be perfect because the one who's made the express image of God is going to be here. So God's word lights up or illuminates our future. So the apostles who saw Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration and they heard the voice, this is my son 
uh, in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. They, they had a confirmation and an affirmation that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who was prophesied uh, to come. The prophetic word functions as a light, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And by the way, the prophetic word accurately tells what history is going to happen. It, uh, the false prophets didn't do so. Now here's something that's a little weird to hear a preacher say. You will not need your Bible forever. The fact is, I wonder sometimes how much longer we're going to need it. Right now, it's absolutely essential because it is the light that we have in a darkened world and it ought to be a daily part of our lives. And if you didn't start off this year trying to read the Bible every day, you ought to jump in it now and keep it going. Uh, you can listen to it every day. You can listen to a podcast that, that has it. It's so easy to get the Word of God in your life. It just takes a little bit of effort. But, but in verse 19, he says, we'll only need the Word of God until the day dawns. And he's talking about the day of, of Christ or the day uh, of God. And you hear about this several times in the Bible. Here's an example, Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day, the Lord's day. The, the day of the Lord will be the one and his name one. Uh, if you look at this passage from Zephaniah, uh, a, whole, uh, a whole book of Zephaniah, and we'll show you a scripture or two in a moment, is, is a warning about the coming day of the Lord. And the Old Testament portrays these days as days of judgment. Joel chapter 2, most of Joel chapter 2 is, is a warning about the day of the Lord. And so there's a lot of different Old Testament passages that focus on that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment. So let's look at just a few of those scriptures. How ye, Isaiah 13, 6, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. You hear that? Destruction. Doesn't sound pleasant. Alas for the day, Joel says, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty it shall come. Uh, Joel 2.1 says, blow the trumpet. You saw that picture in a minute ago with the man with the shofar, the ram's horn, blowing it. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. It's the day of judgment that's coming. Uh, Joel 2.11, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And there's a couple other verses that I won't take the time to, to read here. Of course, this one, Joel 2.31, by the way, is our most famous one, because you hear it repeated in the New Testament when he says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. But guess what? The day of the Lord is also spoken about in the New Testament. First Thessalonians tells us the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the interesting thing about the New Testament is, yes, they, they agree with the Old Testament that it could be a day of judgment. Acts 2.20 makes that very clear. But he also says that if you're a Christian, the day of the Lord is not something to be terrified about, but to be excited about. That's it. pretty cool. So here we see in 2 Corinthians 1.14... Here's a different perspective on the day of the Lord. As also you have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing even as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, when the day of the Lord comes, I'm going to be happy for every soul I won to Jesus. And you're going to be happy for whoever taught you about Jesus because they're the ones that brought you to know Christ. It's going to be a day of rejoicing. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, the day of the Lord comes like a, a thief in the night. One more, 2 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. Paul tells the Thessalonians that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He says, listen, it's really coming. It's a real deal. Now, just to put things in a time perspective, and we know, and the pastors preached on on end times things before and talked about eschatology. And I remember one time somebody got, got mad at his eschatological view and decided not to come back here anymore. And so if you don't agree with mine, please don't do that. Uh, you, you, you and I can have different views on the timing of the end times and we can still fellowship together because we still believe 
the same things about salvation. But th this is pretty much how I understand it, that there is a day of Christ coming when Christ is going to return. And we have that 70th week of Daniel. And you can go back and listen to the pastor's messages on Daniel and hear about that. But there's a seven-year period of time uh, during which there's the tribulation here on earth. And then at the end of the time, there is basically the great white throne judgment. And that's the final day of the Lord uh, that's going to happen. And, and at the end of that day, uh, there are two destinations for people. And I'm glad the person who made this slide actually got it right. I hate it when it says heaven and hell because that's not what the Bible says. A lot of people will say, you know, if you don't know Jesus, you spend eternity in hell. That's a generic term, but it's not scripturally correct because the Bible says, And death and hell and the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and these were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. The eternal place of those who refuse Jesus as their Savior is the lake of fire. And that's coming at that great white throne judgment. So at the great white throne judgment, we have the, the sheep and the goats judgment and the great white throne judgment. And basically, there's the beam of judgment seat of Christ. So there's a judgment where Christ rewards those who belong to him. And there's a judgment where others are sent in, into the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's kind of a scary thing. Now, what does Peter say about this day of the Lord? He wants to go on about revelation. He says, first of all, you need to know that God revealed the contents of written scripture directly. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, that means the written word, is of any private interpretation. So I went out and I looked up the Greek and here's what it literally says in the Greek. Above all, recognize that every prophecy of Scripture did not arise or come about from one's own explanation. So in other words, there's nothing in the 66 books of the Bible that somebody said, I think I should write this down because I think I've had a good thought here. Now some of you are probably about to challenge me because you remember where Paul uh, said about uh, a certain subject about divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now, I'm giving you my opinion or my interpretation here. I haven't received this by direct revelation of the Lord. Uh, however, God made sure that those verses were in the canon of Scripture and He used a divinely ordained and appointed apostle to convey thoughts that while Paul did not hear them directly from Jesus Christ during the three years he was in the wilderness of Arabia uh, after his conversion, but before he saw any of the other apostles. And Galatians tells us he spent three years seeing Jesus as one born out of due time. And he, he went to seminary for three years with Jesus. And apparently there was no lesson on divorce and remarriage. But Paul knew the Lord's will well enough that he says, here is what I think you need to know. And if you read what he says, he's basing it on Old Testament Scripture. So what he says is based on Revelation. So he, even then, it's not just a private opinion. So God directly revealed his truths to the writers of Scripture they recorded it with their own personalities, their own vocabulary, but they were superintended by the Spirit of God so that they couldn't make a mistake. You know what? This is a really big deal that he superintended so that nobody could make a mistake. Now, this last thing, we talked about illumination, talked about revelation. Let's look at in, uh, interpretation. If you go to seminary, there's a course you take. It's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. Now, at our seminary in Jacksonville, Texas, we, we learned quite well, and I think they're still doing this, what was called the grammatical, historical, contextual method of Bible study. We learned how to do what's called a synthetic overview of the Bible, and then we translated it from the original language, and then we studied the grammar, and then we did word studies, and we did all this stuff to really get at what was in the mind of the writer when he wrote it. Then I went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth for my doctorate, and... Uh, when I first went there, they had kind of a liberal president and a bunch of liberal theologians. And I took a class in hermeneutics, and they, they said the way to study the Bible was read five commentaries and summarize. Can any of you imagine why I had a problem with that? Commentaries are written by men, and you read five different men saying five different things. How do you know what the truth is? You just summarize their errors? Doesn't make sense to me. So I thought, surely I heard that wrong. Not only that, the professor said that inerrancy and infallibility were bad terms. 
I didn't have a problem with saying the Bible was without error and that it would never fail you. So I said, I better take that course again. So I went, took the same course, different professor, got the same mess. Uh, fortunately, I can, I'm proud to say that Southwestern didn't stay liberal like that. They got another president who kind of brought them back around to their, their moorings. But look what Peter says. It's scriptures not of private interpretation by the prophets. See, there are a bunch of false teachers. When we get to chapter 2 of Second Peter, you're going to hear him just wail on the false prophets. And basically he says they'll take any scripture and they'll twist it to mean what they want it to mean. Which, by the way, is what the majority of the early church fathers did, which is why Christianity went into darkness for 1,400 years of history until we pretty much had the Protestant Reformation that began to bring us back out of the hole. But... Uh, Peter says, listen, the revelation and the interpretation go together. What, what God revealed to the prophet, he helped the prophet understand. So the prophet was writing with understanding. He interpreted the scriptures for the prophet. See, a genuine prophetic word isn't just the content of a dream, but what the interpretation of the dream is, for example. So Peter says that our written scriptures are a revelation from God and also contain all we need to properly interpret. By the way, the best way to interpret the Bible, if you find a verse that's hard to understand, go find a verse that's easy to understand that explains it. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. Now listen to this revelation the prophet Jeremiah had. It says, In the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to me saying, what are you seeing, Jeremiah? And I said, I'm seeing a branch of an almond tree. Then he always said to me, you did well to see, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. And the word of Yahweh came to me a second time. So what are you seeing? He says, I'm seeing a boiling pot in the faces from the face of the north. Then Yahweh said to me, from the north, disaster will be unleashed on all the inhabitants of the land. So Jeremiah's having some visions. And, and one of these visions is a boiling pot and there's some kind of face on the north side and, but he didn't just leave Jeremiah to, to scratch his head and wonder. He says, here, Jeremiah, is what it means. From the north, disaster will be unleashed in all the inhabitants of the land. He interprets for the prophet what the prophecy means. Here's one more example. Zechariah chapter 1. He says, I had a vision of the night, and look, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing between the myrtle shrubs that were in the ravine, and behind him were red, reddish brown, and white horses. And I asked, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me said, I will show you what these are. And the man standing between the myrtle shrubs answered and said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of Yahweh who was standing between the myrtle shrubs, and they said, We have patrolled the earth, and look, all the earth is dwelling in peace. So there's an interpretation to a dream that he has. God didn't leave it to the prophets to wonder what these things were. So as scripture is being written, the prophets in both the Old and New Testaments often had visions, but God didn't leave them to decide on their own what to mean. He interpreted it so that they could write down the interpretation for us. Now, there is a bit of a difference between interpretation for the prophets and interpretation for us. For the prophets, God explained himself what it meant. You remember when Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the seed and his disciples come to him later and say, Master, what, what is all this about? And he says, don't you understand? This, this is pretty simple, but let me lay it on you. And he explains it for them so they don't have to guess. Okay? The problem is today we don't have God, first of all, giving us dreams you know, I told you last week about a dream I had, but I don't believe it was a revelation from the Lord. But it was something that in my spirit and my soul, uh, a truth of Scripture that excited me and I had a dream about it. Uh, but we, use, we find out what did the words they used meant, meant historically. What was going on in history? What was surrounding the events of Scripture? What does the grammar say? What is the context? A lot of people love to take a verse of the Bible and say they use it to prove anything they want. And most of the time, if you go read a few verses before it and a few verses after, you can knock their weird interpretation right out of the ballpark because they fail to put the Scripture in context. Scripture should be used in context. I had a seminary professor that often said there's only one correct interpretation but many applications. So in other words, find the right way to study. You'll come to the same interpretation, and then you can find lots of applications. And by the way, what does Paul tell Timothy? 
Paul told Timothy, you better learn how to interpret the Bible. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly outlining or rightly interpreting the word of truth. So there is a right way to interpret and a wrong way to interpret. And that's what he was trying to, to tell us. Now, so what do we need to learn to do? And I actually taught a class at the, on this years ago here at the church, and we had a few people participate in a study of the book of Philippians together. But let me just give you a few things. Number one, whenever you read your Bible, get a, a pen and paper in hand. Start taking notes. And if you're reading a book of the Bible, I, I suggest you read it through about four or five times before you draw a lot of conclusions. And when you're reading it through, make a graph on a piece of paper. Make a graph for everything that book says about Christ. Make another column on that piece of paper for everything it says about the readers. Make another column for everything it says about the problems the readers were having that the writer was addressing. Make another column about anything that it's, that book says about the end times or the second coming of Christ. Make another column for, uh, you know, what it says about God the Father versus God the Son, etc. And then as you're reading, write those Bible verses in each of those columns because you'll start learning the theology of a book and you'll start seeing a structure of the book emerge. This is part of what's called doing a synthetic overview. And then you start building your own outline before you ever read a commentary. You start looking at what are the key words of each verse. And if I was going to make an outline of this book, how would it... What, how could I sum up this verse? How could I sum up this verse? Now that I've summed up all the verses in that paragraph, what would sum up that paragraph? And I can make my own outline of it. That's what a synthetic overview is. Now, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. That's why it says, study to show thyself approved and God a workman. It's work to do that. But at the very least, you can learn to read with a pen and paper in your hand and take down observations that, that you make. So those are things you learn. But there's, it's also important to know what not to do. And what we not, need to not do is don't pick scriptures to prove what you already believe. A lot of us start thinking we understand something and we pick scriptures to support the belief uh, first. The scriptures should choose our theology. We shouldn't pick scriptures on the basis of our theology. When I went to seminary, we had this whole chapter of Romans chapter 9 and it talks about how God chose Jacob over Esau uh, before they were even out of the womb and a big topic of discussion in our denomination at that time was this whole question of, of election versus the free will of man. And so I thought that I had it all figured out. I said, well, God chooses who's going to be saved basis on his foreknowledge of who will be saved. And that worked great for me until I started translating the book of Romans. And then in Romans 9 it says, It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, God chooses, but it's not based on what decisions we're going to make. Not of him that willeth. It's not based on what actions we're going to do. Not of him that runneth, but it's of God that showeth mercy. In other words, it's God's choice. And I thought, I have to refine my belief. Well, later I came to refine it even more and understand that I believe that's talking about two nations more so than two individuals, but that's a subject for another day. But don't pick your theology and then look for Bible verses to prove it. Read the Bible and then figure out what your theology is for that way. Don't proof text. Be like the Bereans. Now, what, what did the Bereans do? Well, it says in Acts 17, it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These, talking about the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They're double checking what Paul and Silas are saying. And you know what you need to do when you go home after hearing a sermon like this? You need to double check and say, well, but is that really true? Search the scriptures. I'm more, and, and if you find I'm wrong, please tell me. And if you find the pastor's wrong, please tell him. Double check. We don't want you taking what we spoon feed you and accepting every bit of it because that's how people get into all kinds of error. Double check. Well, I want to close with a section on the inspiration of scripture. What's it mean? Basically, inspiration, Peter says, men spoke from God. Look what he said. He, he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in verse 21. In verse 21, he says it a negative way and a positive way. And, and, and first of all, he says, 
The prophecy did not come about by any private interpretation. In other words, real, the word of God isn't something that comes from human ingenuity. And then he gives us the positive that the men spoke from God with their own personalities, their own literary styles. It wasn't dictation and you wrote down every word that God dictated to you. God gave you the words in your heart and you wrote it down in, in your language and in your personality. And yet the Holy Spirit stood by to make sure that everything was rendered inerrant and infallible. You were carried along. The word carried here means he was impelled or he was borne along. Some of you heard the story of uh, Haydn, excuse me, Handel, writing uh, Handel's Messiah that we hear every year at Christmas time. And he wrote for two weeks so nonstop, he didn't sleep, he didn't eat, and he drank very little. And at the end of two weeks, uh, he had lost most of his eyesight and he was sick from a weakened condition. But while he was writing Handel's Messiah, it was like something was moving him. And anybody's heard that, you know, you have to believe that the Holy Spirit must have had a part in that. This word uh, moved along or carried along for is the word used in Acts to talk about how a sailing vessel is moved by the wind. You got your sails up and the wind pushes you. These prophets were pushed by God to write the scriptures. They didn't take dictation. They weren't in a trance. And they didn't write down just like robots what was said. But still, God's word was too important for him to allow us to introduce errors. So the Holy Spirit ensured we got the word of God. Let me read you what the Westminster Confession says, and I'm almost done. It says this, The whole counsel of God, it's everything we ought to know, concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, it's written in the 66 books of the Bible, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible unto which nothing at any time is to be added. By the way, they didn't figure this out for themselves. They read in Revelation where there's a judgment of God if you add to his book. He says, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, these are these people that go around and say, well, God revealed something to me in a dream last night. Well, if it's contrary to what's in the 66 books of the Bible, he didn't reveal squat to you. Uh, he says, or the traditions of men. This would be, early church history and say, oh, well, early church did it this way. We should do it too. Listen, Paul wrote the Galatians because they were in doctrinal error. Uh, there are other people in the New Testament who were in doctrinal error. So why do we think that the early church fathers didn't have any doctrinal error, especially since they were two, three hundred years after the conclusion of the New Testament? We, we, we shouldn't believe that at all. It's, it's, it's insane. It's ridiculous. John MacArthur said it this way. Historic Protestantism, and I want to be very clear on something, I am not a Protestant, okay? Nothing wrong with being Protestant. Baptists aren't Protestant. Uh, there's been Baptist theology even before the Protestant Reformation. Don't have anything against being a Protestant. I have been a Protestant in my past. But I just want to be clear, this is, this is John MacArthur saying this from his point of view. But he says, historic Protestantism is grounded in the conviction that the canon is closed. Well, so is Baptist theology. No new revelation is necessary because Scripture is complete and absolutely sufficient. Scripture itself is clear that the day of God speaking directly to His people through various prophetic words and visions is past. The truth God has revealed in Christ, including the complete New Testament canon, is His final word. And He gives Scriptures for that. And He gives some very fine Scriptures for that. So the point is, uh, it is something that the canon is closed. So I want to close with this thought. The thought is this. We have at our access a book that's written by God. The one who gave us breath, gave us life, puts food on our table, gives us the power to go to work. The one that keeps our families together. The one that gives us moral laws. The one that gives us the ability to fog up a mirror in the morning. Who gives you your next breath. And he wrote a love letter to you. It's 100% accurate. I write courses for IBM, and I struggle to write a course that I don't get an email about later. Well, this part of your course is wrong. You know what? Usually they're right, and I'm wrong because software is complex. I don't understand every aspect of the software until somebody explains it to me. Then I have to go back, publish a correction. You don't have anybody having to go back to publish corrections to the Word of God. Interestingly enough, though, I think there's been 63 revisions of the Book of Mormon. 
they are still publishing corrections and still don't have a single thing in there that's ever been proven. It never fails. I'm going to fail some people, and people fail me all the time, but God never fails. It is God-breathed. That's where it's the Greek word theopneustos. When it says all Scripture is given by inspiration, it means God-breathed into Scripture. And it illuminates our path with truth. It will keep us from stubbing our toe in the darkness of life because it shows us how we ought to live. So here's the big question. Is it really a big, important part of our life? If it's the most important book written by the most important person that helps us avoid the most important failures that we will ever have, does that mean that we're spending enough time in it? Or are we spending enough time memorizing it? Dennis is going to come lead us in a song. And I just want to invite you wherever you are, whether you're at home or in the pew. Some of us started out the new year with a really good New Year's resolution of reading the Word every day. I know Brother Eric was, came up and gave a testimony about that. Hopefully that's something you do. But uh, I know it's uh, May, close to the end of May, and maybe you didn't do it very well the first five months. Jump in and start tomorrow. Just start reading His Word. There's nothing more important. And I want you to feel absolutely 100% confident that every decision you make that's in accordance with God's Word would be a good one. It won't be easy. It won't sometimes be fun. But it will be worthwhile. And every decision I've made in accordance with this word, I have no regrets about. Would you stand, please?